Thanks for tuning in to the 168 Podcast, a podcast from Mitchell Knight and Jordan Bird of the Clarence Church of Christ, aimed at helping you connect Sunday worship with everyday life. Welcome to another edition of the 168 Podcast. Today, Mitch and I are going to be talking about the miracle of the raising of Lazarus. So Mitch, why don't you get us started on that miracle and kind of just introduce the passage and whatnot to us or any thoughts you have about it absolutely john 10 i think is what it is or at least what i looked up earlier or no john 11 that was one chapter off oh yeah eleven thirty. so starting in john 11 from verse 30 now jesus had not yet entered the village but was still at the place where martha had met him when the jews who had been with mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So that is the passage that we're looking at. Um, As for my overall thoughts on everything, the first thing I take notice of is how Jesus sympathizes with Mary and Martha I find it touching that he is emotionally moved to see or emotionally moved by seeing how they are emotionally impacted by the death of Lazarus. Um, I think that is a testament to how God looks at us as his children, his creation. He uniquely values us. Uh, He knows we cherish each other. And um, yeah, so there's a care there basically is what I see. And I think this, miracle itself ties into this whole theme of the Bible calling death sleep. To Jesus, our death is just sleep. Um, And sleep is obviously broken by an awakening. So looking at death, a lot of us think that it's just the end-all, be-all, that it is the termination of everything that we know. But if God looks at it as sleep, then it's really just the end of the first chapter. And that's kind of the precursor to the resurrection that we'll get to experience on the last day. And this is showing us that Jesus has the power over the consequences of our own sin and our past mistakes. He can overturn the negative consequences that we have brought on ourselves by finding evil in the garden, which I think is obviously a message we all relate to. This is a miracle that inspires all of us, and it gives us hope and faith that we too will be risen in spite um, of our spiritual wounds on the last day. 
So I think those are just my opening thoughts on it. I don't think I left anything out of our pre-conversation in that. So do you want to share what you're thinking about it? Yeah, the I echo your sentiment on the humanity of Jesus that's noticed throughout it. Especially we see the emotional side of Jesus. I mean, the just the simple words of Jesus wept highlights that a lot, which that whole scenario is very odd in the broader picture of, and we didn't read this part, but, or maybe it talked about it a little bit, but Lazarus dies, and then it's multiple days before Jesus shows back up. And Mary even makes the comment of, like, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And even in, the, in that intermediate time, there's, like, some oddity to uh, at least the disciples and I think Mary and Martha of, like, why are, like, why aren't you going? Like, why isn't there an urgency that you go? Like, if he's not well, why are you not there? That kind of thing. So that that seems a little bit odd when, like, later he's so emotional about it. But I think it's because you see there's a broader, like, maybe point that's being shed, broader light that's being shed on on the situation. It's not just about Jesus stopping something within another person's life, but, like, what is being revealed in that moment. And there's even some hints or even point-blank things that are said throughout this passage that point to the, the broader point that's being made. I mean, even Jesus makes the point by saying, God, I know you hear me, but I'm saying this so that other people, you know, basically pay attention to the relationship that we have and and who you have sent me to be amidst them. And that right there already points to far more than what have been than what have would have been conveyed had Jesus just intervened and Lazarus not died. And I think that a lot of what is really going on here is you see the the very clear cut like life, I mean literally life death, but like you know, it's not just like Jesus steps in from Lazarus getting like a paper cut or a scrape on the the <clears throat> knee or something. It's he's either alive or he's not. Like it's very drastic. It's not just like a bump in the road kind of a thing here. But when Jesus shows up, he does characterize as like this doesn't have to be the end, like you were talking about. And and the way he talks about death as sleep and not like the permanence of it, but only someone from Jesus perspective of being the son of God could have that kind of perspective on the situation. And part of that is, I think from God's perspective, you know, Jesus being the son of God is that death is not viewed how it would be from us as a human perspective. Death for us is like the finality. There's, there's no turning back. I mean, even those of in the world who those, those people in the world who could care nothing about God, death is still a very real reality. You could kind of downplay it or you could kind of ignore it, but it's still a reality that's going to impact everybody, regardless of what they think of God. Um, even, you know, the whole like, is it cryogenic? Is that the like freeze yourself and yeah, hopefully you can come back later? Yeah. I mean, even that is like, you're dead. Like you still are relying on something else to eventually sort of revive you if that's the way you want to look at it. But like death is still the reality. It, it's a very real thing for, for all people. And yet Jesus approaches it as if, as if it doesn't have to be the final thing. And so I think that that very much stands out. But I think a lot of it's because we, I mean, I think death is very confusing for us in our day and age because we very much view it through just a very biological lens. We view life very much through a very biological lens. Yeah. 
I mean, we see that just within the way we talk about, even just look at our prayers. Like when we pray about things, we're like, if something's wrong with our body, it's like help the medical system to heal us. <laughs> Not that we don't turn to God for that, but we purely look for like our biology to be fixed. And like, if our biology is functioning well enough, we're healthy as if like, that's the end of health or the end of like a fullness of life. And we're not just biology. We're, we're far more than that. We are beings who have God's spirit breathed into us to, to give us the breath of life. And so there's far more to us than just like our cells working or blood pumping or heart pumping blood or our brain working and things like that. And I think part of this passage or this miracle highlights that like, there's far more to life than just if this Lazarus body is functioning or not. There's something broader going on there. And I think you see that in that Jesus eventually brings him back to life, but it's not a sustainable thing. Like, okay, he brought his biology back to functioning, but he still is susceptible to death later on. Right. So there's something broader to what life is than just someone's biology functioning and someone like Jesus keeping it going for a certain amount of time. And I, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of why the point of it isn't necessarily the biology being restored, but it's Jesus demonstrating for the faith of the people that are witnessing this that he has power over death. You know, like we're transcending our belief in just the biological stuff. We're trusting in the God who's actually the maker of the biology. And like from the time of Adam all the way till now, you can see life expectancy going down and down and down and down and down and even um you know middle ages until now i mean it was still going down and basically you know we think that we're healthy we're the healthiest we've ever been but like our biology is basically on a life support system of pills and medicine and treatments and all these different kinds of things and i think that kind of makes what jesus is doing here important because i think our view of death impacts how we live our life. I mean, if we think death is the end-all be-all, you can see it in the world today. If biology is the only thing that matters, then people are inspired to live in a way that's like, well, I just need to get as much as I can in this in this lifetime. I just need to be find as much pleasure and happiness as I can. But for people who believe that Jesus has overcome the grave and that he will overcome the grave for each one who trusts in him and is baptized into his life, death, and resurrection, then they live in a way that produces fruit for his kingdom that is proactive not only in a chapter one, but understanding that there's more to life than just this biological part of it. Like you're living in a way of producing fruit for eternity rather than just trying to produce pleasurable stuff for yourself in a limited amount of time. I just think our our perspective on death is important. And I, I think that's kind of a main theme of what he's getting at by doing this, you know, with Lazarus. I mean, he even said, like you brought up, he's like, I know that you listen to me, but I'm saying this so that they'll believe that you sent me. I, I think it's more for them to trust in Jesus as having control over this stuff and for us to get us in the right perspective of looking at how God intends for things to pan out over the future. Yeah. And I mean, the other significant point to me is that all this points to, like you mentioned earlier, Jesus having control over life and death, or I mean, and it shows like who he is 
um, connected to. I mean, he is God. He is God in flesh. And so the reality that he has that kind of control that, that we, that we as humans don't show something. And, um, ultimately it shows like who is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I think that's the broader point that that's aiming to be shown is I'm not just here to do like this cool trick, but like, do you see, like, I actually am talking about being the person who has been promised, who is the one who began this whole thing to begin with. Like you have life because I have gifted you life and you are only sustaining in life because I help sustain that. Like, it's a gift from the get go. It's not something we can direct or make on our own. Like it's always something we receive and we're dependent on God for, it. I mean, so we're ultimately like God is Lord. We are not, but yet we can, we've been deceived to think like, well, we do have control over it or we can suck the most out of life we can before we're, death somehow takes us over, which is very deceiving in and of itself. Like we're deceived to think we can suck life out of all of life before death as if we're controlling things and death is like, it's, it's the whole thing is just very deceptive. Um, but ultimately I think it does point to like, who is, who's Lord overall? It's, it's Jesus. Uh, but back to the, the humanity of Jesus. One thing that I think is encouraging or good news to hear in this passage is to see an image of God relatable in the ways that we experience life. Like we can often think of God as this sort of lofty above our life. He, you're God. You, like you don't have to deal with the stuff I deal with. You don't have to deal with the emotions I deal with or, or the problems I deal with. Like you're God. Like, you know, we, we almost kind of think of him as like the ultimate rich person or something, which he is, but like, well, you can't relate to my issues. So, but we do see that here shown in where, where it does say like he wept, like there's this, sense of loss of like ugh, like mm, like <laughs> yeah what like it didn't it shouldn't have to be this way i mean it's, it's it's expressed in sorrow but there's sort of like all of that like wrapped up in that moment and it is a moment where it's like oh like maybe god does like through jesus he understands the stuff i go through like he did live in a in a world where other human beings do ridiculous things or he lives in you know in the created world where it's fallen and and death is a reality and it does impact people and affects people and sadness is a reality in the world in which we live in right now like you see that all in that moment and it just does to me at least for me points to god not being so otherworldly or beyond us or whatnot but very present in um, aware of our current situation as human beings. I don't know if you want to tack on anything more to that or have anything more on a different note. Yeah, let me just think for a second here. Because I had something based on what you were talking about. Because you just mentioned... Why am I blanking here? Something you just mentioned got me thinking. I can't remember what it was. I hate when that happens. Not over and beyond us. Oh yeah. Um I I think with Christianity what makes it so impactful is that we know God took on a human nature. I mean it says in the Bible that he was tempted in every single way that we were, but he did not sin. He like he knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what we face, he knows the struggles that we endure. 
but he overcame all of those in a perfect life to take our place and our punishment on the cross. Like he knows exactly who we are, what we struggle with because he's been there. And I think this is another, you know, just like you were saying, just another way that helps us relate to him. And I think overall in this whole series we've been going through and the, the miracles of Jesus, kind of the running theme we've been maybe subtly hinting at here is, you know, the miracles expire, but the point isn't about the sign itself. I mean, Jesus gets mad at people for demanding signs and things like that. The whole point is to point them to who God is and what power he has over their lives and the consequences of their sin and death. The miracles expire. The miracle giver does not. Like the loaves and the fishes eventually run out because Jesus stops multiplying them. The walking over the water eventually stops because he hits land at some point. But the man who is able to overcome the waves and the winds who's able to overcome our hunger and our despair and the man who's able to overcome sin and death is forever. And that's kind of the point. He's proving that the father really did send him. He's proving that he's the Christ and that he loves us, which is, I think what we're getting at. But I think, and even in like atheism or skepticism nowadays, that's, that's like a a big focus is like, well, did these signs really happen? It's like, we're focusing on, you know, I, I know it's important to focus on the actual events, of course, but what's more important is how it reveals God's character to us. It's like almost like we were focusing on the horses rather than the wagon in in a way. So the Sunday school answer, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. But But tied to that, something that stood out to me recently, which I've probably read over before and just never really thought about too much Uh, but the triumphal entry of jesus into jerusalem where he's preparing to go into jerusalem which where he'll eventually be crucified and and that whole thing will happen but he rides in on the donkey and people put their coats down and the palm branches that's where we get the whole palm sunday dynamic from and that passage which i think is just the next chapter in john if i'm recalling right and yeah, and it, it that whole scenario ends by the writer of John's gospel saying, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, uh, many people because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So you have all these people going out to meet him, but only because he did this like crazy sign, like this this miracle, this you know, like a magic show kind of a thing. Like, look at this spectacle. And like, as much as there's meaning there, like this guy's life did get revived. Like he, he is a lot, he was alive. His sisters got to experience life with him again. His friends did like all that is very real, but that was the attraction to Jesus and not Jesus and who he is being the attraction, which is what you're pointing to. Like the miracle in and of itself had an expiration date or was finite like Lazarus was eventually going to die again this wasn't something that just gave him perpetuity into eternity at least as far as we know from revelation written in scripture um but it's who it's ultimately pointing toward is is the main point and and you see that the fruit of that even in what happens with Jesus like if all these people were really about Jesus and like 
the look what this guy did they would have like rallied around you know you would think they would rally around him and like support him even when people are criticizing him and yet they all turn on him essentially and he ends up crucified or put to death and so yeah i I think that even that part of this story which is you know the next chapter echoes the temptation to put stock in the miracle itself and not the actual person who who is performing or again performing seems weird but the the one who made the miracle happen to to start with which is jesus so yeah the focal point is always jesus and and who truly is lord of all things and is he lord of our life or do we like say that but like functionally often maybe isn't because that that's very true for i think a lot of these people like oh yeah he clearly is someone who's unlike anyone else we've seen but was he lord to them and i think that's kind of the question we're faced with even today like he seems different. Like even as you read scripture, like even I think most non-Christian people, a lot of people don't have an issue with Jesus. They usually have issues with Christians and the church and stuff like that. But Jesus, they usually don't have an issue with, but is he Lord? Like, is that where we all end up with him in the end? Um, Cause that's the, the dynamic that we have, we're faced with. And are we surrendered to him as Lord and entrusting our life to him for eternity, not just like today, but today, tomorrow, next moment, and the moment after that, and into eternity, and the, to the things we can't control. Yeah, I mean, that's that's like the whole point of like something like Luke 9 or any of the other comparable passages in the other three Gospels of you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow after me. There's this very much... Like there's this isolated feeling of, okay, in spite of my burdens and my brokenness, I have to, even though it's going to be tough, I have to follow after Jesus. And that's in the absence of these, you know, miraculous signs sometimes. It's like we can't just expect a show to be put on for us. You know, he has already, for lack of a better word, like you're saying, put on the show for us by taking our place on the cross. If he died for us, you know, we're supposed to be living for him. And it's easy to say that we do that. But to actually do it is a tough lifestyle. And I think that's what we're trying to point you toward. Yeah. All right, now time for the 168 News Desk. No, I want to do is good. <laughs> so our topic, or I guess we kind of settled on like the topic we were going to talk about for this segment of the podcast is looking ahead to the NFL draft and what position the bills might select. And I even kind of threw in there, like, will there be maybe any change kind of before we even get to the bills? Like Jacksonville's on, they're the number one pick. And it's one of those years where it's like, not everybody's, at least as far as I know, not everybody's clamoring to get to the top, but someone's going to pick and it's going to be a good person. Probably, you know, most likely anyway, and so it seems very much like the year where Miles Garrett was drafted by Cleveland, where it's like, it's not a quarterback. It's not like this, like, Ooh, wow. Like position, but it's like, you got to have that person and they're going to be a difference maker on your team probably regardless, but it's not the, everybody's just clamoring to get this person necessarily. So it kind of seems like it's one of those drafts, but I know it's also packed full of like a lot of receivers and, and, you know, Positions a lot of teams are really wanting to also fill for their team. So what do you think about the – I think the Bills are the 25th, right? 25th or 24th. Somewhere in there, yeah. Um, So, yeah, what do you think think as far as position? I mean, 
players it's like all over the place there's a lot of players but just position wise what do you think well it seems like what's likely going to happen is either there's going to be a draft for a cornerback or a wide receiver i mean there's been a lot of clamor that they're going to go for a wide receiver but I mean, if it were me, I'd rather have them take another cornerback because we have a really good scheme with Tyron Johnson and um, Trey White, but with, you know, like Neal and I think Jackson, who are more of like the special teams guys, it'd be nice to have another guy there for like a split or a rotation. Um, But it sounds like they're probably going to take a receiver, which, I mean, okay. But I'd rather have them take a running back over a receiver. I feel like really you'd want them to take a running back in the first round in the, in the draft. Well, I mean, if you're the bills, I mean, so we signed Duke Johnson, right? Singletary has been excellent. Like since, you know, the second half of last season, it's been, he's been really good, consistent, but it's nice to have two really good running backs to split. And I, I, I don't know. I still think, I think objectively, I think receivers are more injury prone than running backs. I think. I think that's still true. I but mean, some of this I mean, comes it's down, probably like a one and a two, though. I mean, some of where this comes down to is how the money part of it plays out down right. the road. And, and, so you, then, and you don't also don't know if you're even going to hit on the person. I mean, it's a right. gamble either way. But. So this is like an ideal world. But, I mean, ultimately, at where they are in the first round, it's going to just be, like you said earlier, just like best value. The best value comes from a wide receiver or a cornerback or a running back. They'll probably do one of those three, but it's most likely going to be a corning cor, corning back cornerback <laughs> or a wide receiver, like that guy from Alabama. Other than like Josh Allen's draft year, where it was like, I don't think it was ever even debated they weren't taking the quarterback because it's like the whole plan was to get a quarterback at that year. Um, but a lot of Brandon Bean's other drafts, I mean, this is just the whole draft process is just very like. Seek, top secret we're not going to share anything until it happens kind of thing but i could very much see like any of best player available the cornerback or wide receiver being something they would do the best available just because that seems to be how they tend to approach drafting and even like playing and all that kind of like they, they seem to approach like the best person for the job is going to, you know, end up there. And so like, we're going to take whoever the best person available is, even though that's still like subjective, but so I could definitely see them just like being a position that we're like, that's what you went for first. But it's like, well, if that's the person who was there, like, I I mean, I could see them doing that. I can see the cornerback thing because they want to look toward the future with maybe more aging cornerbacks or maybe not as high caliber because they've like either brought them in secondarily um, through free agency or cuts or whatever. And so picking like a high caliber person, but also young there, you know, the draft level, like payment stuff. And so you kind of have some like leeway down the road of like how to deal with that. But I could also see them trying to go, you know, still signing somebody else to kind of fill that role maybe as well. And then like receiver, I think is the same thing. Like, looking down the road like again not like like well, we need to have this person but like the way they're constructed like having all the receiver options available is like just going to be that much better you would think and it also gives them some leeway down the road of like reworking or adjusting the roster and and helping out that way so i i think all three of those are are possible uh, i think ideally i i would lean toward the receiver part of it i think 
um, just because of how receivers seem to be talked about in this draft. Like they seem to be. There's a lot. There, Actually, there's a lot of them, but it also they all seem, seem to be receivers. fairly high caliber players. So I don't know much about like the other positions and how, how much that's touted, but it does seem to be like receivers. Like it's almost like Josh Allen's year. Like if you get one of these players, you should be set for fairly well. I mean, again, I, you, you never know how that's going to play out, but I think are Wilson and Olave from Ohio state in the draft. I don't remember. I'd have to go look up. I think both of them were. Olave, I, I know for sure. I know but. one of them was, uh, I thought one of them was a junior who declared like draft potential early because I guess you can do that if your thing is up in college or whatever. Maybe. I, yeah, I don't, it might depend on how far you're through you are. Yeah, I don't know the governmental stuff when it comes to college. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean from a lot of big schools for a lot of different positions. So. I had almost like someone mentioned, I think a Georgia player being one of the potential first pick um, candidates. And I was like, I had, had a moment of like Georgia who won the national champion. Like I had already like kind of forgot who, who even did that. <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah, that wasn't even that long ago, but I already like it. It just to me was like not a, I guess I just wasn't invested as much in who won that game. So it was like I really had kind of forgot about who, who, like where the players were coming from, I guess. But yeah. But yeah, anything else you think from the draft that you would expect or hope for? No. I think it's just going to be crazy. It'd be interesting to see who trades around for a higher pick. I was going to say, someone's going to try to trade up for something, even if it's like midway through or whatever. But it seems like. Spend their, like, sell themselves into slavery to get like <laughs> you know we'll give you the the next six first round picks for this year's first round <laughs> like i feel like that happens like i mean the rams <laughs> it's so funny the rams aren't even on it uh, on in the yeah. first round because they've you know they traded their soul for matt stafford but it worked but out <laughs> I, I mean granted fantasy sports is not the same as like real life in all ways but i have noticed like one thing in some of the fantasy sports stuff that i play that if you have already decent players, like especially like I play a keeper league for one, so you get to keep like I think it's nine people every year. You get to decide. So if I already have like nine decent players, who I have in the first round of the draft is like it's already like a whatever value in comparison to my team. Like if that player is going to be so far down the depth chart of who I already have, like it almost doesn't matter if I have the first round one or not. Like the second round one could be just as good. But I get the real life draft stuff doesn't quite work that way, especially in the NFL. But any last words before we jump out of here? Hasta la vista. Hasta la vista. <laughs> Go with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for this episode of the podcast, and we'll catch you next time. See you later, 1-6-8-ers.